Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. And you can check out my Audible on African-American athletes on Amazon. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, The Institute of Black World and Politics of the 1970s, as well as Blood, Sweat and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou, for an emergency podcast. Oh, the emergency podcast. Thanks, man. It's good. To, it's good to be back four days later. No, it's good. It's good. Jalen Hurst got his first uh, first win. So I'm, I'm excited. Shout out to the black quarterback. Um and yeah and but it but it's bittersweet right Jalen Jalen Hurts wins and Lovey Smith gets fired so yeah it's been a it's been a brutal off season in the black coaching ranks uh this uh, on season yeah I mean look I mean this is the third I mean it's really the off season because these teams have been mostly done but we've had we you know we had fourteen coming into the season we had fourteen black head football coaches. Uh, and three of them have not made it to Christmas. Um, uh, Derek Mason at Vanderbilt University, Lovey Smith at the University of Illinois, and Kevin Sumlin at the University of Arizona. Uh, and all three. So I'm I'm going to say this very clearly up front in this podcast. Um, there are uh, particular reasons all three of them had. Uh, and probably deserve to be fired. If I was a fan, alum, booster of any of these programs, I think I would have been clamoring for each of these um, uh, coaches to be replaced. So this is, I want to say that they had, it's not, uh, I don't think any of these firings are unjust per se. Um, Ouch. I just, I mean, I think, I think Derek Mason had plenty of time at Vanderbilt. How much time did Derek Mason have? I think Derek Mason, let me look it up because I want to be factually, I'm trying to get more, right, 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 trying to get right. more factually correct on this show. While you uh, look it up, I, I will agree that that the something you knew something was gone and 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 Lovey, I don't Lovey was just in a really good situation. And I just think like Illinois should have just they gotta they gotta make a decision. Either you gotta go really young or you just keep somebody like Lovey for for the for the brand, right? Like Lovey's a brand and you're not a football school. So to have him associated mm-hmm. with your school is a good thing. Um, but he, he didn't win he, and he didn't win at a school that nobody has really won at. Um, yeah. So, well, I mean, all right. So, so let me back up real quick. Derek Mason was at Vanderbilt for seven years. His record was, oh, that's, he, he had his time. He, has, he was a, uh, a below average, uh, 22, at, I mean, 27 and 55, he you had your time. He went to two bowl games in his time. Vanderbilt is by far the most difficult job in the SEC. Um, right. uh, but I think if, that the, can we say it's one? Is it real quick? Is it one of the most difficult jobs in the in the in the Power Five to to win at? Um. Yes. It's probably. I'm trying to think what could be harder. Um. It's probably the hard. I mean, it, it, they play in the SEC. They play in the SEC East. So their every year opponents are Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, uh, Kentucky, um, and 
and then they have to play across into the West, which means that they have to play. I don't know who their regular Western opponent is, but you know, LSU, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Mississippi State, one of those schools. And so, you know, in a 14 team SEC, I think it's 14 teams in the SEC. In the SEC, they are by far the uh, lowest ranked team. And I think that what makes this job more difficult is Vanderbilt by far has the highest academic standards in the SEC. <laughs> uh, and so they are recruiting uh, players who have to meet a particular kind of academic threshold that, to be quite honest, many of the other institutions in their conference don't have to meet. Uh, and so they're trying to find a very narrow sliver. They're basically trying to do what Stanford has done uh, in uh, the Pac-12 without the, you know, what however many billions of dollars that Stanford has or the cachet that Stanford has accumulated uh, since the rise of Silicon Valley. Um, uh, and then the, finally, uh, the state of Tennessee uh, does not produce um, a large number of, of, of football players. So it's not like they can get like in their regional backyard. Uh, although Nashville is one of the fastest growing cities in the country, um, it is not led to kind of players uh, in the thing. So it's a tough job. Like it's no, there's no doubt. Uh, James Franklin was a miracle worker uh, at Vandy when he won there. Uh, and there was a reason why he uh, uh, jumped ship to take the Penn state job. Uh, Cause I'm looking at his record at Penn state real quick. I mean, uh, at Vandy, for instance, uh, James Franklin went 24 and 15. Um, right. And that's great. <laughs> spectacular. They won two that's, bowl yeah. games. Uh, he went to he went to three bowl games in all three years, um, and in 2012 and in 13 they won nine games at Vanderbilt, which is unprecedented. Really, Look, I mean, think about that: nine games at Vandy and 25 and 13, whatever you said, gets you Penn State, right? Yes. That's how hard that Vandy job is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think well, Harbaugh went like did really well at Stanford, and that got him the 49ers, right? So yes. it's like if you and and was Ty did what? Where what was Ty Willingham? Was he Stanford Notre Dame or was he? Am I getting this backwards? No, no, he went to Stanford then Notre Dame. He did he right. did pretty well at Stanford right. and they got him Notre Dame because they you know same academic um, uh, profile um, and they too wanted to you know I think they wanted to make a foray into to diversify in the coaching staff. I think that they they felt like they needed to go in a different direction. Um, um, I want to say I want it wasn't Lou Holtz, but after some of the kind of turmoil the previous coaches had. Um, but here I know so we don't get off topic. I know the reason why uh we're here on a on a and really kind of this emergency uh uh podcast is because earlier today, as we said, Lovey Smith gets fired and then uh Derek starts this little tweet storm. It might be three, I might be overdoing it. It's probably like three or four tweets. But to me, they're really profound. And I hit them in the DMs like, man, we should do this on the pod because some of the stuff you were saying was really illuminating, right? On the one hand, there's that Auburn, that Auburn tweet. So you might as well just tell them about the Auburn tweet. Uh, because the numbers you had that you had posted was crazy. So uh Auburn, uh Auburn University also fired its football coach, Gus Malzahn, uh to Today, yesterday, today, uh, and uh, Gus Malzahn's contract is uh, means that he's guaranteed for the next however many four or five years he has left on his deal, which will amount to about twenty one and a half million dollar buyout. 
which is crazy for college. He's getting football. paid in full. Like well, he's getting 50, it all right now. And this is the great fifty percent of it. So eleven point two, or yeah, like eleven million dollars. Ten and a half, ten point seven five will be due um, uh, in thirty days, and the rest Ooh. will be uh, can be spread out over four years. Uh, it just depends on whether he has an offset. Uh, means if he gets a job, um, uh, the salary he gets from another job will pay. I don't know if he has an offset or not, but regardless, he's getting twenty one point five million dollars in the next. Five, four years or something crazy. But the thing that struck me is that because uh, I know it's Auburn and, and I know is Old South, um, that they will not interview a black head coach candidate. Um, and uh, and I think this is very apt, right, because they won't black one. And I read an article that just not come necessarily completely related, but I think these things are all tied to for us who focus on race and sports. These things are all tied together. That uh, Inside Higher Education reported that they only uh, Auburn only had 157 first year African American students uh, this past fall, I believe. 157 out of like a 30,000 uh, person school, right? So this is a huge institution. That's wow. And that states, what is it? States like 27%, 26% black or something? Yeah, like that, or? yeah, 26%. Yeah, so it's a quarter black. As a state, uh, Auburn is getting 157 students. Uh, and then if you just do back of the envelope math, right, um, you know, 20, 25 of those students are football players of that 157. Uh, another four or five are, are men's basketball, another four or five are women's basketball, track and fields, probably another, you know, six to a half dozen. Right. So you're talking about probably 40 plus of that 157 um, are student athletes. <laughs> right. Right. And that's, can, can we be clear? That's in, to me, it's intentionally bad, right? Like you, yes. like we've, we've talked about this before and, and I don't think we've ever brought this up on the pod, but, but, a lot of colleges are after black students, right? Like mm-hmm. I guess my guess is that if you look at Alabama state population, they, these colleges, just like they do out here in the state of Michigan, they've figured out that you're not getting more white students. So your white student percentage will be about the same with those people applying. That's just how the numbers work of people leaving the state, you know, people having kids, et cetera, et cetera. But the black students, right? This mm-hmm. is where people are looking to tap into. So we, we put resources in going into Detroit, man, we probably have a million. It's not a million, but we have a lot <laughs> of, of uh, charter schools. Remember when charter schools were a thing? Yes. Uh, we've got a gang of charter schools that we run in, 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 you can't see me doing the air quotes, but like in the inner city, right? Like in Detroit, like we've got at least 20 and then we've given them special preferences. I, I don't know what that means. That, right. I, I know they still taking out loans and then we put them in, uh, remedial math classes, the English classes, and they're there an extra year. But we we're doing that in Chicago. We're doing that in 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 Detroit. We're doing that in you know what I mean. We're hitting yeah. these spots. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure every school is doing this. So to only have a hundred and fifty in a state that's twenty seven percent black, and you know what I mean, like that's that's ridiculously low. Like you got to be really bad. You actually got uh, to have numbers. Well, like I think there's that. twofold, right? I think it's twofold, right? The one, I don't think, I think it speaks to, because this is, now this is for people who are out here for our sports are going to get in, our, you know, inside baseball on higher education. Uh, I think the people who do enrollment management 
have failed and have very little uh, uh, desire to recruit at Auburn uh, black students. I think that that's part of it. Uh, one, I think that's that. Two, I also think that it signals a uh, a probably particularly uh, inhospitable environment for black students. Um, and so black students are not telling their friends that they should come to Auburn. It's lit. They're probably telling right. them like, I'm at <laughs> Auburn. You should probably go someplace else. Right. I think that there's something else happening there. Uh, and so when we talk about diversity, right, which is the numbers, right, the inclusion part is how you uh, uh, retain those students, graduate those students, and um, and also keep recruiting and encouraging the next generation to come right. um, uh, uh, year in and year out at these institutions, right? Oh, uh, right. And, go ahead. Real quick, the buzzword, retention. <laughs> That's it right there. Whenever the higher-ups start talking retention, we know who they're talking about. We know they want that check coming in. But yeah, you know, you, you've got this, you got this all right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, um, and so I'm looking at these numbers that at Auburn, uh, there are only about 1,600 Black students in 2020. That's what this report is saying. Um and, you know, I think that that speaks to, you know, challenges. And I think the, the challenges faced in Auburn are not uh, dissimilar from uh, many other institutions, right? But I think on the sports side, this is also connected to the fact that uh, uh, student athletes, as well as the coaches uh, and coaching staff at Auburn's football team and other athletic teams, had a uh, Black Lives Matter march this summer. We, we've done a podcast about all these student athletes, uh, you know, um, uh, amid this pandemic uh, and in the aftermath of the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, using their kind of leverage as um, really the most visible Black students on campus to really call attention to uh, uh, the kinds of uh, racial injustices mo- across the nation, but also the peculiar and particular kinds of um, racial incidences on their campuses. And and I think that speaks loudly, right? So this point of this Black Lives Matter march, uh, this is an opportunity for these players in some ways to influence it. You know, do these black players go to the administration, to the AD, uh, to the president and say, look, look, we not, we understand that you are in charge, but we want to see some uh, a coach of color interviewed. This is how you leverage this. And if you don't, like, you know, their best players uh, can be very vocal about it and get in the transfer portal. So it, they can actually tank the job for the candidate they want. This is actually tremendous leverage in this moment, because if your best players who are supposed to come back are like, I'm not coming back, I'm transferring because I don't think that they, if, for these particular reasons, right, then the next coach who wants to, who is, is going to be tasked to be immediately successful against Alabama <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Good luck. Um, yeah. <laughs> will uh, will be facing a particular kind of deficit. Right. Or maybe he he is, you know, genius enough to, to find new players that can offset this. Um, but I think once if the word gets out that the place is hostile, it becomes very hard to recruit the kind of elite blue chip athletes who especially the ones from Atlanta, uh, which is really the closest uh, city uh, to uh, Auburn. And trying to recruit these kind of elite players at Alabama, similar to what Alabama is getting, University of Alabama is getting. So, you know, these are the kinds of 
behind the scenes chess pieces. And I think that part of the thing that we that frustrates me as I watch, you know, uh, all these coaches changes every year and very few black coaches, you know, getting a first chance or a second chance uh, is very much tied to. Uh, it's unfortunate that the people who have the most power in this situation are not the ADs, but the actual players. So we're going to ask our student athletes who are particularly vulnerable on one-year scholarships uh, with desires to play professional athletics to really take a huge risk to try to change the way uh, uh, hiring is done in athletic departments. Um, And this is why you need some allies and some coaches and some ADs to really uh, take the lead in this. Right. And, and I think this, that's an important point because if we look at history, this is, this is how the black coach gets in, in football in the first place, right? It is those protests from, from the sixties, the late sixties. So 68, 69 of, of black athletes saying, wait a minute, we want a black coach. Right. But what happens, and this is, is still related to today, you get the black coach, right? So Michigan state, those guys, for example, have a protest in 68, right? Post MLK's assassination. And then within weeks, they get their first black coach into the coaching ranks, right? And this happens at a, at a lot of places across mm-hmm. the country, right? And, and, and you know, Michigan State, we've talked about before, they had Doherty, right? They, they were known even before that as the place where if you're black in the South and you want to go to a PWI, then you're going, you're going to go to Michigan State, yet it still had this problem with this black athletes. But once you bring in those black coaches, they're not necessarily bringing them in to be eventual head coaches. They're not bringing them in to be offensive coordinators or defensive coordinators. They're just bringing them in to satisfy the black athlete. And they become, and we've talked about this on a number of, a few podcasts, right? They become the recruiter, mm-hmm. right? And so often these black coaches get stuck in that role, that recruiter role. So on the one hand, right, you're right. These players can leverage their power. And we've seen it before, but you have to do it collectively. It can't be one dude. It can't be like uh, my man from Mississippi State and, and a state flag and you know, whatever yeah. happened with that. It's got to be all, it's got to be Missouri 2015, right? Yeah. It's got to, it's, and it's got to be collectively just like that because that's how you get black coaches. That's how you got black professor, uh, professors, professors on on campus right the power of this collective power of black students black student athletes to to create change Mm -hmm. the second part in this though is you've got to have the proper pipeline right there's what what will happen and i think this often this too often happens in the nfl with the rooney rule they just bring in some guy and sometimes it is, and unfortunately, they used to bring in Denny, 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 Denny Green to be that guy, right? Yeah, no right. good under well. He would just do him favors because he he eventually became part of that good old boys club, right? Where right. I'll come in. I know you're hiring Bill Parcells, but let me go ahead and, <laughs> and do this fake interview or whatever he did uh, for the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to have people there and that's the next step like there are young guys like marcus i believe it's marcus freeman at cincinnati i know mm-hmm. uh as a d coordinator i know uh nevada has a a, a i would say a hot uh youngish black coach mm-hmm. but there's no lincoln riley right that we know of and yeah. that's on those coaches not creating an opportunity for a black lincoln riley yeah, I think that there is exactly. I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think there are some coaches. I think there's a there's a brother at at um at Alabama, 
uh, Charles Huff, who's a running backs coach, who's who's been kind of elevated uh, each time under Nick Saban. Usually, you know, the Nick Saban stamp gets you a job, right? <laughs> Um, but you know, how many black coaches does he have in his tree? Just one though, right? Uh, Flores, right? No, who's his black coach? Flores? No, who's no, that's that's Belichick. Um, he had one at Michigan State. Is it Williams? Oh, James, James Williams, Jim Williams. Um, we're just throwing out names. Sorry, go on, go on. Look at it. I think it was, yeah. Um, but go ahead. Yeah, tell us about your guy, your guy, your running backs coach. Yeah, Charles Huff. I think he's he's a he's a qual. I mean, like, my argument is that, like, look. Um, I say this quite regularly. Most college football coaches fail. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like if you look at the longest tenured head coaches in, in division one football and FBS football, it's like Kurt Ferentz who has been there like 20, 21 years, but m- the vast majority of jobs have changed in the last five years. Uh, and so we're not talking about like, you're going to get this coach, right. And, um, you know, this higher right, and it's going to be, you know, Bear Bryant or Jake Gaither or something that's going to be there for 30 years or whatever. You would like that to be the case. But the facts are that that's probably not going to happen, just especially the way coaches move now. And so I think that you are taking risks, right? And I think that these administration and boosters and ADs and search firms are all willing to, to take risk on young, white, uh, supposedly genius uh, uh uh, coaches who have gotten opportunities to do things that black coaches aren't able to do at a young age, call plays on offense, be a quarterback's coach, be an old line coach. Those are the positions as the game has become more uh, attuned to offensive. Everybody wants an offensive coach. Um, these guys are always tapped as the next generation. That's not to say they're not genius. I mean, look, Urban Meyer was a, was a quarterback's coach, right? Like, you know, you know, he's fantastic at the same time. Uh, you know, Mike Tomlin it was a D coordinator for a year, co-D coordinator for a year, and was mostly a DB coach. And they tapped him to be the head coach of Pittsburgh. And I think he's done all right, right? So I think that there's no there's no particular kind of position. We've seen uh, uh, Jim Harbaugh, who had the the probably the perfect Michigan resume, uh, literally fail at that job. We could say that on this. Like they're, they've yeah, been. Yeah, yeah. He failed in the sense that he never got to. The, he had like a number of ten win seasons, but you better have ten win seasons. So but I, I mean, pretty, yeah, yeah. But now but, he's done. Yeah, I mean, like Michigan, Ohio State dominates this relationship, yeah. right? Like, um, and we've yeah. seen Tom Herman, who again had a perfect resume, ideal for Texas, um, basically just get his job saved this year in part because Urban Meyer probably told him that he didn't want to take the Texas job. Right. Uh, yeah. um, and so uh, and so just because you have the perfect candidate doesn't mean that they are going to be successful. So 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 my thing is always, look, hey, you got to take risk and you got to take opportunities and black coaches don't get opportunities and because they are basically pigeonholed into this position to basically be the lead recruiter. Right. You, you know, and they don't get to call plays. Uh, and if they do get to call plays, it's mostly on the defensive side. Uh, and all defensive coaches have been slow on the uptake to head coaching positions. Right. No, you're you're right. Um, I was trying to think when you said first of all the the coach for Nick Saban is Bobby Williams, but Bobby Williams. I know we had talked. We've talked Willie Taggart a few times, and I think Willie Taggart at one point had that opportunity, right, to be 
that kind of young hot coach and he and he leaped pretty quickly and now he's done and that's the other thing about these black coaches i don't see willie taggart getting another power fight job right he, after he got he oregon he went florida state and i think he's pretty much done we saw this with kevin sumlin now we mentioned at the beginning of this episode that you know he deserved to be fired you get you get beat down like that you're you're done you cannot but, lose to your let me just say that you cannot lose yeah. to your rival 70 to 7 and you can't it just can't happen in college football well, too, he was the guy like 10 12 years ago right when i don't it's so long ago when he had menzel like he i mean he was honestly he could have made that he was the black chip kelly right he could have made that leap to the nfl he could have leveraged all that he was the only one of the few that you could think of, right? Mm-hmm. Where he was a black coach who was thought as an offensive genius. There's yep. probably on, on you can list them all on your hand, right? Who get that tag, that genius tag. And he was one. I think Denny Green was one. Obviously, he had the greatest receiver of all time and Randy Moss with him. Uh, <laughs> hey, Chris Carter. And, 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 you know, whatever. Chris and, Carter and Denny Green was, was bringing in black quarterbacks like Randall Cunningham. He even did good with Jeff George one year and then Dante Culpepper. Um, but there's very, very few. And then I think someone, you know, things went wrong and then he took the wrong job um, because Arizona's not it, right? He had a, he had a top quarterback for a while. But you know what? If you, you know, I, I understand why he took that job, right? Because, you know, you get if you once you get fired at Texas A and M, which is probably a top twenty job with resources at least. Um, you know, if you're a black head coach, there's no guarantee you're even going to get a second shot at being a head That's coach, true. right? So and so, yeah. so you can't just be picky. Like oh, if I sit out this year, next year everybody's going to come for me. It just doesn't work that way, right? Um, and so he, you know, he took the Arizona job, and at the time they had a quarterback who was pretty good. I think his name was Tate. Um, yeah, Marquette or Marquise Tay or something. I don't know. I might be making that first name up, but um, but Tay got hurt, and then they just kind of stumbled, and they just never really regained their footing. And then at the same time, and this is how this works, right? Like, so they're struggling a little bit in the recruiting front and finding the right quarterback and getting the right players. And Herm Edwards comes in at Arizona State, which I thought was not really a great hire. Uh, given Herm's age, uh, age as well as his lack of experience at the collegiate level, um, but I always knew he could be a good motivator, and he's got he's a pretty good teacher apparently. And he's and they found some recruiters, and they've been killing it. They've been recruiting really, really well at Arizona State, um, and um, I think they're really poised for a big season in the next year or two. Uh, one of those big eleven, you know, ten, eleven, twelve win seasons. Um, in part because he's been able to do that, right? And I think that those two things combined, right? Your 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 arch rival going up the ladder and you going down the ladder, it's always a recipe for getting fired. But the interesting thing is I think Kevin Sumlin is um I, I would be in, you know, I would try to hire him as a if he was interested as an offensive coordinator, right? At one of these power five jobs. Like I think some we're gonna see a little bit of movement. So it'll be interesting to look uh as we move from um December to February when signing day happens, um, uh, the second signing day, uh, we will see if his name comes up more often uh, as an offensive coordinator. Um, he because he was extremely talented in that front of Colin plays, and maybe that's his, you know, maybe that's his wheelhouse where he realizes like you know running the entire team is not his strength, but running an offense and running you know the offensive side of the ball is really his strength, uh, and and you have to find this out. 
Um, your point about Willie Taggart, same thing. A guy who who rose really fast at Oregon really only got an interview because Oregon has a law that requires them to have diverse candidates in their in their kind of public. That's right. That's right. Uh, and he wild them in the interview, and I thought he had a very good first year. But you know, the Florida State job came open. Uh, he's a Florida native, and he said, "I think he made the mistake of one. It was his dream job, right. uh, and that place." I don't think he looked at it with objective eyes to really see the kind of problems embedded in the embedded in the in the program. Um, and when you're black, you can't take those kind of missteps. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like I'd like to see him win it where I used to work at FAU, but it's not been great. Um, but he'll have a little more time there to see if he can straighten it out. Yeah, and he'll win Florida. I mean, he'll start recruiting Florida really well. But one of the things I want – there's two more points I want to talk to. I want to get to another tweet that you had. Um, but first, I want to talk about how do we – one of these changes that we see. Now, the NCAA has a rule that you're going to have to start – our teams are going to – I don't know if it's forcible – are going to have to include a minority candidate um, or someone from underrepresented group in women's – and men's sports, those major sports. And it's important to point out with women's basketball is just, just as bad as um, the power five football, right? Um, there's, there's very few black head coaches, black women head coaches uh, in women's basketball. Uh, but what, what I talk about with football is like, I'm really passionate about this idea of like pipelines and, and, and picking somebody, right. And, and helping them raise up because that's how I got here. Now, obviously I'm not a football coach, but uh, I am a doctor. Uh, <laughs> get uh, but that was, yeah, that was it, man. It was, it was, uh, another professor of color who, you know, all the, everybody ignored me. Right. I was like a three, nine student and nobody, no other professors talked to me, but it was a professor. It was the professors of color who actually told me, you know, like that mentorship, Hey, you know, you can go to grad school. What's grad school. I had no clue what, what, what mm-hmm. I was doing. Right. Um, and it's them, my, my entry into this was, it's always been professors of that one or two professors of color, um, you know, just creating an opportunity. And I get the sense that they did this with a number of students, right. Creating their own little, little pipeline. And I think that that needs to happen at a whole, right? Like you, like these coaches, like Nick Samick just can't have one black coach in his tree, right? He's got to create this pipeline, but I think it, it starts early and it starts with recognizing that player who, you know, is not going, is not going pro. And maybe he's in his third year, he's in his fourth year. And, and he's, he's somebody, maybe you don't even, you know, he's, he's third string and he's not, you know, he's not getting a chance. You need to, you need to find, do everything in your power to make sure those guys, right? All these power five coaches, make sure those guys have an opportunity, right? That summer in between their senior year or whatever to go to these coaches clinics. So what I'm saying is that these schools, or if the NCAA has to enforce this, maybe give an extra scholarship, right? Give an extra scholarship to somebody who's, who's about to graduate. Maybe his football career is done, but you, you know, give him a scholarship so he can get his education, but you got to keep him on staff, right? Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden you got this young guy and he's on staff and you're sending him to to coaching clinics or camps like that just to get his feet wet, right? Just so you create this pipeline. And if all these schools do it, now you're going to start to have, and you do it every year, now you're going to have to start a, a good candidate pool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that these young kids got to believe that this can happen. I've, I know I've told this story before, but but it always sticks with me. 
I had two guys in my class in one of my sports class. One was, was he was a, a white kid who, who probably listens to his show and he's going to eventually do well, um, a, as a college coach, but you know, he's not, not athletic, didn't play football, but what he wanted to do was be a head football coach. Right. So he hung around the football team, but his mentality was, I want to be a head football coach. And I think part of that is because he saw himself as a head football coach. Mm-hmm. The other kid was the star, one of the star running backs. And I was like, dude, what do you want to do? Oh, I just want to be a running backs coach. And I'm like, wait a minute, man. This guy who's your classmate and who works with the team with you, his aspirations head coach, your aspirations running backs coach. I think part of it is, is that he doesn't see himself on the sidelines above the position of running backs coach. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, and he's also had no one told him that. Look, you could do this, right? You could be, you could be the next Eric Bieniemy or, or whatever. I mean, it wouldn't have made sense at that time. But I don't think people are pulling him along. Like, look, man, this is D two. You're not, you're not going pro, mm-hmm. right? But but if you want to stick around in football, here's the pathway. I can create this for you. Yeah, no, I think you're right about uh, coaching. I think that they're. Um... Uh, two things. One, I think that there are NCA has a lot of programs. I think that you're talking about trying to get, you know, assist people to finish and also, you know, get them into the coaching ranks. I think there's some of that, uh, you know, the pathway to, to head coach is, is, it's not that there are not enough people in the system. There are a lot of black GAs, which are graduate assistants who come on and somehow are able to catch on as their first job at, you know, division three or, or division two and work their way up, whatever, whatever. Um, the problem is that the pathway, um, just like your running backs coach, he understands your running back who wants to be a running backs coach. He understands that black coaches path to job security is laid through primarily through recruiting and being the best recruiter. And that at the same time, being the best recruiter means that you're not being asked about what you think about X's and O's. It's about getting the Jimmy's and Joe's, right? Like it's like your job is to go out and get, get me the talent. And then all these smart guys figure out what to do with them. And so they're at positions uh, like running backs coach or DB coach or wide receiver coach, which um, are tasked with, uh, they have very, I think they have important coaching responsibilities, but they're not coordinating like, uh, and so an old line coach, for instance, is, is seen as having more to do with coordinating the offense and run game and pass game uh, than the D-line coach, which is basically like you guys got to fire off the ball and make a play, right? You know what I mean? Like the, just, that's just the way uh, this thing gets imagined. And so as college football has become a much more offensive game, those folks who are on the offensive side of the ball, um, the pathway towards X's and O's, uh, towards the top to the coordinator position is really – uh, is not through the running backs position usually. It's primarily through offensive line, QB coach, and then occasionally wide receivers can move inside because if you coach wide receivers, you can coach quarterbacks, right? Uh, unless you're black. And I think that's right. really the challenge, right? Like black black wide receiver coaches are remain wide receivers coaches unless the head coach is very intentional about moving their black uh, coach to a position that will allow them and put them on the path to be a coordinator and eventually a head coach. And I think that's, that's the piece. Right. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's the challenge. And I think that a lot of, a lot of staffs and a lot of, a lot of coaches are are not necessarily doing that. Right. And I think, um, you know, that's the challenge. It's just a fundamental right. challenge. Right. And so when you look at, um, 
you know, you look at uh, Alabama staff right now, like, you know, Mike Loxley, who's the head coach of Maryland, which is my alma mater, which I, I follow quite right. a bit. Um, you know, Mike Loxley went from after he got fired uh, for the second time at Maryland, like he had left Maryland and he got fired as the OC. I uh, was the interim head coach when Randy Etzel got fired, really wanted the Maryland job, didn't get it because the hot new young coach, DJ Durkin, he wowed the staff with his energy. Um, and so uh, uh, Loxley went to Alabama as a, as a, you know, as an analyst, offensive analyst, right? Learning for how Nick Saban runs his program and, and eventually he became the OC. He wins the Brawls Award, which is the top assistant coach in the country. And he gets to come back. But most coaches don't get that chance, right? He was right. he was terrible at New Mexico. It was a disaster. He wanted to be a head coach. That was the only job that he could get. And uh it was a it's a very difficult job where you know very few people have won. Um, but he's in my opinion, he's in the right fit. I think Carl Durrell is a great example. A guy who who got fired at UCLA was a young, up and coming head coach at UCLA. Uh, you know, loses his job in part because he's running up against the USC juggernaut that was <laughs> Pete Carroll. Right? <laughs> like, why can't you know? Why can't UCLA compete against that team? I'm like, that team was those UC, USC teams were amazing, and then Carl Durrell. Lo and behold, after Mel Tucker leaves to go to Michigan State, he gets the he rises uh, he rises up the ranks and gets the job at uh, uh, Colorado. They've had a very successful season this year. Um, you know, played better than people anticipated. I think he's he's proven that you know sometimes you can get a good job a, a second chance. Jimmy Lake, who's the new uh, head coach at uh, the University of Washington, uh, has got the University of Washington in the Pac-12 championship game. Done an excellent job in his first year. Uh, and so, you know, there's these young coaches, these black coaches who have jobs and opportunities and we want them to see. But as you say, like my my issue is when um, at the University of Kentucky, where I work, I, I was on Twitter. So, you, you know, you can see me say this uh, all day. We are in the process of trying to hire a offensive line coach because the offensive line coach uh, unfortunately passed away, tragically passed away from cancer this year. Um, and we had one of the best offensive lines uh, in the country. We uh, and but our offense was pretty terrible outside of offensive line play. So we have fired the quarterbacks coach as well as the offensive coordinator. And so we're looking for three key positions on the offensive staff uh, and all the initial reports for at least for the OC position were uh, uh, basically white assistant coaches, right? Uh, Joe Moorhead is probably the most famous of the bunch, uh, who was the offensive coordinator at Penn State and most recently the head coach at uh, Mississippi State before he got fired really after two seasons. Uh, And he's the OC now currently at uh, the University of Oregon. Uh, Brian Brom, who is the quarterback's coach at Purdue for his brother, who's the head coach. uh, At Louisville, right? At Louisville. Uh, he's kind of a local legend. I think he was Mr. Football in the state of Kentucky, if I recall right. He's good um, at Louisville, yeah. Um, uh, and then there, and then there's another guy who's the like a positional quarterbacks, assistant quarterbacks coach or something at the Rams. Because everybody, you, if you work for the Rams and Steve uh, McVay, you're a genius. Um, and that was the initial report. And my, I was frustrated. I'm like, look there are all these black assistant coaches who deserve a chance to be interviewed for this job. And this is particularly true when I'm watching my student athletes lead a march downtown for black lives matter. Cause Brianna Taylor had attended the university of Kentucky. 
And I see the coaching staff say that they are supportive of their players. And I'm like, if you're supportive of the players, like they can't just be this sort of wearing this T-shirt at this march. You need to actually do something to really transform not just their lives and, and, and protect them as a coach is expected to do, but also how do you change the profession that which you're in? Right. And you have the most like your stoops, like you got your job as a defensive coordinator, your first power five D coordinator position because your brother got the head football coach at Arizona. Yes. Right. Like you got it because of nepotism. This is not to say Mark Stoops isn't a great defensive coach and he didn't deserve the job. But let's just be honest, like your brother was the head coach. Right. And and so I think that there is there is this there is this frustration as a person who studies college sports that said, look, man, like let's find somebody else. Let's give somebody else an opportunity. We had like one of the worst offenses in the country. How about we, how about like at some point we can't be any worse than that. Right. <laughs> like my, you know what I mean? Like we, right. we were like, right. we averaged a hundred and some yards passing in the country. You know what I mean? Like, and so, yes, we would like to be better. And yes, this is an important job and maybe you don't want to take risk. But every job, every hire is a risk. And so, you know, if we want to talk about this. And so let, let me let me wrap up with this point here. Bruce Arians in the NFL. Bruce Arians has taken this um, uh, this uh, approach that he is going to give opportunities regardless of race. And so he is the only NFL coach who's uh, a D coordinator, offensive coordinator, special teams coordinator, uh, are all African-American. He has two women on his staff, right? right? Like this is ahead of the curve. And this is what it, this is what it means. We talk about allyship. <laughs> Remember we talked about this, like, I don't know, our third podcast last year. Um, that's what it means to be a white ally. Like you're in this position of power. You're giving these guys opportunities. If they fail, you get the right to fire them. You might get fired, but you're willing to take that risk. And the truth of the matter is this, like these guys are undervalued and they're probably going to be cheaper than the white guy that you, you think everybody wants. And I think that there is this, this thing that like we could give these guys opportunities, um, and and I would like to see the place that I, that signs my checks, University of Kentucky, to 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 not just be a t-shirt wearing program that says Black Lives Matter and support because you don't want to be look bad when it comes to recruiting, but you're actually out there trying to find the next young coach and and that that young coach could be possibly African American that you're providing opportunities besides running back coach or D line coach as important as those positions are that you're providing a pathway to. Uh, the head coach's position uh, for a next generation because you are in a position to do so because not because black black coaches last names are not stoops. <laughs> right. right. No, that's good. I think that's that. I think that's a great place to, to end actually. All right. Just, well, that's all right. Right. No, that's a great place to end. Like I was going to ask you one more thing, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I was, well, was going to ask you. Your other tweet, you're, you're going, you got, you're going So I'm not going to stop you. Your tweet was uh, for top black uh, recruits to go to one of the schools with a black football coach. 
Can you expand on that a little bit more? And then we will get out of here. All right, I'll be quick on this one. Uh, I think that the the irony is that the elite players, much like we see the way LeBron, uh, uh, the elite players in professional sports are able to leverage their uh, uh, their power, right? Their popularity and power to really push the league in particular kinds of directions. Uh, in college sports, um, obviously the star players on the team can do this, but in many ways, uh, because college sports is so dependent on recruiting, uh, the next generation of elite players that elite players, if you're a five-star guy, uh, you have a lot of power in, uh, deciding, um, the future. And I, you know, I think that, you know, one way that they could tilt the scale is they could, as we talked about on this podcast and others, you know, they could go to HBCUs. That's always an option. That's always a broader discussion about getting kind of blue chip players back to historically black colleges, but they could also go play in the, they have, when you have 50 scholarship offers or a hundred scholarship offers, you can pick a school uh, and that school can be somewhat, that decision can be both in your best interest, but also be uh, political and have a broader political consciousness. Uh, And you could say, I'm going to go play for Mel Tucker because I want to have a black head coach uh, or I want to go to Maryland or I go to Colorado or one of these other schools. And, if players start going to these schools and these coaches start having the kinds of success with these top end players, that will force the Auburns of the world to be like, well, we can't keep missing out on all these players. We need to get, we need to at least think about a black coach. Right. And I think that that is an important piece uh, to that equation. But I also am very cognizant that that requires a lot of political education to both families and players uh, and it's a lot to ask young people to not be enamored with all the bells and whistles of, of, of big time college sports at Ohio State or Clemson or Alabama uh, and and go to, you know, and make a decision uh, that is somewhat politicized uh, when they're when really what they're thinking about is how do I get to the professional ranks? How do I get to the NFL or how do I get to the NBA? Right, right. And I think, too, uh, and we're out, but didn't Kevin Kellen Winslow do this with Kellen Winslow Jr., I believe? I mean, they wind up at Miami. Yes. Uh, but part of part of the slow roll was, he, you know, we're going to look at the possibility of playing for a black coach. Yeah, that was um, one of his things. He, w- I think he had, at one point, he wanted uh, a black coach and he wanted uh, uh, or a black coordinator. And you know, Kellen Winslow Jr. was uh, apparently hard-headed uh, and, and fought that a little tooth and nail. And so I think the compromise was UM because I think they had a black tight ends coach when he got there or something like that, or a co- oh, yeah. co-offensive coordinator or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of parents. I think Kellen Winslow Sr. was, I mean, obviously that was almost two decades ago, um, uh, ahead of the curve, really, in trying to to think about these kinds of issues, because he understood that the pathway, like the only way for these coaches to get not first opportunities, but also second opportunities, was for these elite players, these top these top tier players, to play for them. Um, and I think that's one strategy that has not been fully explored, um, uh, and it's hard to do. It just is. It's hard to educate, you know, hundreds of players families uh, when they have aspirations to go uh, to the NFL and most and black coaches don't have uh, with the exception of probably James Franklin at Penn State 
most black coaches do not have the the plum elite premier jobs, right? Like yeah, Michigan State, not Michigan, not Ohio State, not Alabama, not Clemson, not Notre Dame. Um, you know, and so it's a different kind of sale for those athletes who are interested in those programs. Right. Good. That's a great point. And we are on that note. <laughs> we said we were going to be short. Like we said, ah, we're just going to come in here and do like 20, 30 minutes. And 47 minutes pushing. later. Yeah. Here we appreciate it. So we are out and this is it. Peace. All right.